Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits to strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place on the web at maincf.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, domestic violence persists in our local communities, mostly against women. One in three adult women will experience domestic violence in their lifetimes. Those who commit this form of violence do so because they feel a need to control their partners. Fortunately, there are resources um, to raise awareness, provide services to victims, and work with law enforcement agencies to address and prevent domestic violence. And this morning, we're delighted to have some folks in the studio who can help us with that topic, the topic of addressing how a community responds to domestic violence. Glad to welcome Rebecca Hobbs, who is Executive Director of Next Step. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And you've brought with you... um, uh, uh, Rick Doyle. Rick is uh, returning to WERU. I think we had a, you know, a conversation about Next Step and domestic violence a couple of years back. Welcome to you. Thank you, Roger. Good morning. And Lieutenant Rod Charette. Um, he is the commanding officer of the Maine State Police uh, Troop Number J, so letter J. So welcome to you, Rick. Welcome. Thank you. You know, glad to have you all here. So let's um, start. Perhaps each of you could just um, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Rebecca, how did you get interested in this work? What what kind of path did you follow to, to end up as executive director of Next Step? Well, um, I'm a CPA by education and early work experience, and one of my audit clients was Spruce Run in Bangor. Mm. And as I worked on that job, I just really fell in love with the people that worked there, and I became really interested in the mission. So I went through their hotline training, and I became a hotline volunteer. After about a year of doing that, I decided that I wanted to um, make a lot less money, and <laughs> and so I, I changed jobs, and I um, I started working for, for the next step. Then I worked for Spruce Run, um, and I have come back to the next step. Mm, great. And uh, Rick, tell us a little bit about your path as a, a kind of a legal um, um, uh, source uh, for this work. What was your path? Well, Ron, I graduated from law school. Uh, I went to Maine Law and graduated in 2003. And uh, I'm originally from Hancock County. And uh, I was delighted to see at the, at the time that I graduated that Next Step was looking for a staff attorney. And uh, so I applied. And uh, uh, they asked me, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember they asked me uh, at the interview, could I commit to uh, a couple of years at Next Step, and uh, I said, "Yeah, I thought I could do that." And it's about ten years and six months later, and I'm still there. And uh, I love what I do. I, 
I, I really feel like it's a privilege to be able to do this work. And I find it very fulfilling in any number of ways and challenging. And uh, I just uh, don't see an end to it. I, I really am glad to continue to work there. Mm. And Lieutenant Charette, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. What led you to law enforcement? Well, I've been with the department almost 20 years now, and uh, it was a chance encounter when I was a teenager at my uncle's pool. It was a, it was a pretty tame pool party. But anyway, <laughs> for some, the local trooper stopped in, not because he was called, but oh, just sorry, because sorry. he happened to know my uncle and whatnot. And uh, he pulled me out to the side and said, hey, what do you want to do with yourself? And mm-hmm. uh, it kind of branched off from there, and that's what that was my path in college. And uh, in 1994, there was a whole slew of us to put in, and 39 of us made it. And mm-hmm. uh here we are today. Mm. And was there a particular um, a, a point in time when domestic violence kind of got on your radar? You know, it's always on our It's a big part of what we do mm. in this agency and any police agency. And uh, it's always there. It's one of the higher risk things that we deal with. And it's always something you need to be prepared for. So, uh, so it's mm. always been there. Okay. Yeah. Rebecca, t- give us a, a working definition, um, if you would, of, of domestic abuse, domestic sure. violence. Well, domestic violence is a pattern of controlling tactics that are intentional and purposeful. Um, they are generally part of a relationship, and that, but that relationship could be a current relationship, a former relationship, or even um, a relationship that is sort of the perpetrator um, thinks exists, even if the person who's the victim does not think it exists. And it's based on a belief system by the abuser that they have a right to control the other person. Mm. And you talk about a pattern. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes. Um, Well, it's not just one thing. It's not uh, a slap or a punch even. It's a it's a system of tactics that work together with the idea of of gaining and maintaining power and control over another person. It's not just physical violence Mm -hmm. by any means. And as I said in the intro, um, most of the violence is is targeted against women. That is true. Mm -hmm. That's the statistic that we see. And uh, certainly the most of the people who use our services are women and i always want to say that our services are completely open to anyone who experiences abuse or would like to discuss abuse and mm-hmm. the impact on their life so the tactics that an abuser um, perpetrator might use are are wide and varied they're exactly. not just physical violence tell us a little bit about some of those tactics sure um you know we we hear about these things then they kind of work in conjunction with each other there's emotional abuse and the emotional abuse can take many forms there's de- demeaning um, um, comments and uh, putting somebody down, belittling them, and having this happen in a number of ways. Sometimes the demeaning comments are not necessarily, you know, foul language, but something like, you know, you really can't do that. Uh, that kind of thing that makes a person feel less than. There's intimidation and threatening. So whether or not physical abuse happens or happens regularly, the threat of it is ever-present. The um, And that threatening behavior, again, can be more subtle than you would think. There's criminal threatening, which is... Uh, you know, I'm coming over there and I'm going to kill you. And that criminal threatening is illegal. But other kinds of threatening, for instance, I'm thinking of a woman who used our services and her abuser threatened to kill her and bury her in the backyard. And so when he wanted to intimidate her, he would go into the backyard with a shovel. Mm. 
So she couldn't call the police and say, my husband's in the backyard with a shovel, but she knew exactly what that meant when he did that. So that kind of threatening behavior exists. There is, of course, financial abuse in which the abuser controls the money which may be that the abuser makes all the money and doesn't let the, uh, the victim earn any money. But it might also be that uh, she can only receive an allowance. And uh, so the money is sort of doled out by the person who is the abuser. And that, that physical abuse and a lot of these other tactics that I describe are also isolation of the victim, which is a key part of domestic violence. If the abuser is telling the victim over and over that she's worthless, that she can't live without him, that, she, uh, she, that he won't allow her to leave, then he does not want her to get other messages from friends and family and co-workers. So the, the, um, the key really in that kind of a, a setup is that the victim is isolated and not allowed to receive and believe those messages. And that isolation can take many forms again. The victim may not be allowed to have family or friends. The victim may be, may find that whenever she, for instance, whenever her mother calls, he, uh, you know, rages for an hour after. And so she asks her mother to not call. So she is reacting to his violence. And in effect, um, you know, that isolation takes, takes effect without him actually saying your mother can't call. He just makes it very difficult. Um, perhaps they only have one car. Now, there's lots of families who only have one car for financial and other reasons. But if it's because, you know, the perpetrator wants that that person to be isolated, then ice, that's isolation. Mm. The, I'm sorry, I could keep going. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, what's what's the, um, the long-term then impact mm. on the victim? Mm -hmm. um, what does this repeated pattern of, of kind of domestic abuse lead to in terms of how a victim feels and, and otherwise copes? Right. Well, uh, victims of abuse very often feel hopeless and uh, that there's no way out. Victims of abuse feel what a lot of us feel anyway. I mean, they, they might also feel hopeful and, and wishful that this would change. So the, the emotions might be ac across a wide range of fear is often a, a big part of it. Uh, anger, you know, sadness, uh, guilt, Remorse, all of those, all of those things mm. are certainly what victims of abuse might feel. And and this notion of control, um, what the uh, perpetrator is really looking for is is to be able to control the other person and their behavior. Right. Mm. Yes. Mm. Do we know why? Is is that a mental illness on the part of of the uh, perpetrator? What what's going on there? Well, mental illness can happen, and so I don't want to discount that. What we know is that this is mostly about a belief system, okay. that the perpetrator believes that they have a right to control this person, often by virtue of their relationship. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who told me recently that the man that she was dating for a year, they had a great time together and she thought he was wonderful and they rode on his motorcycle a lot. And the day they were married, he said, you can't ride on my motorcycle anymore. And she was stunned and she said, why not? And he said, you're my wife. It's my job to protect you. And from then on, the relationship changed entirely. And he was not mentally ill. He believed that because she was his wife, he had a right to tell her what she could do. 
And so that was the way that relationship played out. And it was a period of time before an assault actually happened to her. And then she did end the relationship. Mm. And that belief system is, is out there in our, in our larger community, our larger society. So it's not just um, one person. This is, they're getting reinforced by society in some way. Exactly. Mm. And that's why we like to take opportunities like this show to really remind people that there are cultural supports for this belief, that this person did not come up with this idea out of the blue it might be something that occurred in their family but it might not be it might be something that you know that they were picking up in the greater culture Mm. so um, how prevalent is domestic violence in our our region is it any different for a rural county like Hancock and Washington counties than it is from from an urban uh, setting the the prevalence of course is not easy to estimate um, in terms of how how often does this happen in the home what we know is the number of people that we serve and you know we have statistics about who calls the police and that sort of thing so uh, last year next up served over a thousand people it was a thousand ninety one people and that is what we call an unduplicated count which mm-hmm. means that if a person called the hotline came to support group uh, lived in shelter and used our court services that would just be one person and some people do use all of those services and more mm. so we served 1091 people and we have you know statistics of the number of hours of time that we spend with people which are thousands of hours and thousands of contacts when somebody reaches out to us we measure that as a contact mm. and again thousands of hours and contacts I'll get some some um, other kind of background from yes. lieutenant Charette what are the are the statistics that you find relevant? Um, do you see changes in, in the kinds of uh, uh, reports or concerns that, that you see in the community? The concern has always been the same. Um, I'm looking at 2012 numbers right now that Rebecca provided to me. Um, you know, in 2012, there were 55, just a little over 5,500 uh, domestic assaults reported in Maine. Out of that, 136 were in Washington County and 128 were in, Was- in Hancock County. Clearly, one domestic violence assault is too many. Mm. Um, you know, we, you can try to put a trend. Uh, you can try to s- put statistics to it. Um, essentially, in the, in, in the way we look at domestic violence, we take it very seriously. And every person is, every person is a person. Every person is a statistic. Um, regardless, of, uh, regardless of the way that you, you slice that, um, where what we're tasked with as a law enforcement agency is we respond to these calls. We identify or we identify the high risk offenders. We work with that. Uh, we'll talk about that a little later. But um, we've taken over the years, and I can think in the last in the last twenty years, um, and only because I've been around for twenty, right. I couldn't tell you what it was like in the seventies. Right. I wasn't here. Um, but uh, you know, we've taken huge steps. And the way we look at this, the way we respond to it as an agency, our follow-up, um, our, our uh, the tracking of these numbers, the uh, what we do for prevention, the uh, the outreach programs that we have, the education, the uh, support systems for victims. I mean, a lot has changed, and we're you know next year we might you know there's a few things that next year we're going to be looking at a little differently, and the year after that we're going to be looking at a little. So as as part of society, we're all part of society. You've seen um, increased perhaps intention by law enforcement on, oh, on these on these situations. Oh, this has become. I mean, um, and I don't want to say we can all remember a day, but I mean right. now, I mean, there's no 
there's no working this out. There's no sitting at the table. I mean, if you've got a clear-cut domestic assault, there's no sitting down at the table working this out between the husband and wife anymore. It just That does not happen. Right, but that used to be the pattern. I can't say that it was because yeah. I wasn't here okay. and I never investigated right. something that way. Yeah. Um, but there's anecdotal stories about that. Right. Well, this is a husband-wife thing, and we're going to let them work it out, and as long as it's peaceful now, we'll leave. Can I think of a specific situation of that? No, because right. I'm I'm speaking anecdotally, but we've all heard those types of things, and we just don't we don't allow that to happen mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, what kinds of services then do you offer? You've mentioned um, hotline and and uh, a shelter. To give us the description of of the services that Next Step provides. Okay, uh, we have a 24 hour crisis hotline. It's available 24 hours a day, um, 365 days a year. It's uh, a call that is always free, confidential, and anonymous. People don't have to give us any information. They can just talk about whatever they want and how the domestic violence is working for them. Um, we talk not only to victims and survivors of abuse, but also to if someone is concerned, they hear that their neighbors are fighting and they want to know what to do. They have a coworker that they feel might be a, an abuse victim. So we encourage people to call our hotline, and it's also the way to access all of our services. So can I give that number right now? Yes, please do. It's 1-800-315-5579. And that number, of course, is available on our website and and many other places. And so we consider our hotline to be our core service. Mm -hmm. We have support and education groups all over our two-county area. And a support group is a drop-in group where victims of violence can come and talk and again, confidential, anonymous, and free. We provide transportation and child care assistance. We call the hotline and we can help you figure out how to get to group. <clears throat> Excuse me. Education group is a curriculum-based group. And that's for people who maybe have come to support group and they've gotten some support and safety planning. And now what they want to do is figure out, so how do I move on from this? How do I build a life free of violence? How do I maybe see signs in the future? And um, how do I co-parent with someone who is an abuser? Those kinds of things we talk about in education group. We hold those periodically, again, all over our two-county area, free, confidential, and all of that. We have an emergency shelter, and our shelter is in a confidential location, so we don't talk about where it is. But again, it's accessed through our hotline, and it's not a a bad place. I don't think that shelter is anybody's favorite thing. It must be very difficult to leave your home and come with your children to live in a shelter. But our shelter, um, the families who live there all have their own bedroom, and they do share the kitchen and the living spaces with the other families that live there. But again, it's, it's free. No one has to pay to live there. And if someone comes with nothing, which is almost always the case, we provide people you know, food to start out with and clothing and shampoo and all of those things. And people can live there for um, often as long as they need to. And I have to say it's getting harder and harder to find safe, affordable housing. So we find that families do live there for quite a while now. I'll just break in to let listeners know that we're talking about um, community responses to domestic violence. Our guests in the studio are Rebecca Hobbs, the executive director of Next Step, um, Rick Doyle, who's staff attorney for Next Step, and uh, Lieutenant Raj Shrett um, of the Maine State Police. Um, A little later, we'll open up our phone calls. But, Rebecca, you've been describing some of the services. You've talked about the hotline, Mm -hmm. some of the educational programs, um, and uh, what the other services, I imagine, um, bring Rick into the picture. Exactly. 
Exactly, yes. Rick, what, what do you do as staff attorney? Uh, well, first, I'm, I'm the Hancock County staff attorney. We also now have a staff attorney in Washington County, uh, Suzanne Barrett, uh, handles cases down there. Uh, but the, the attorneys are part of a legal team. Uh, we have a legal services coordinator who's based in Ellsworth but works frequently in Machias. And um, we also have uh, staff members who are part-time court advocates. And uh, we also have some volunteer court advocates uh, who we, uh, we cherish and, and rely on to, to help us out. And um, essentially what we do is, is, as a legal team, is help people who are involved in the civil legal process. We're not, we're not representing people in the criminal justice system. That's, that's handled by the, the district attorney and the victim witness advocate. Uh, but when people go to court, uh, when victims of domestic violence go to court to ask the court to grant a protection from abuse order, we can be there to help or we can help in some way even if we're not there with that person. Um, and uh, when somebody who is trying to, uh, to get out of an abusive relationship uh, has to go to family court to get a parental rights and responsibilities order or a divorce judgment, or something along those lines, uh, we can try to help there too. And we have several levels of service. So uh, what happens when a, when a victim of domestic violence calls uh, with a legal question, a question about courts or orders or the law, is that the staff member who's handling that call will do uh, a quick questionnaire. Uh, get some questions answered and then make a referral to the legal team, to the legal services coordinator. And Missy, our legal services coordinator, will uh, get that referral to the appropriate attorney. We'll talk about uh, uh, what the issues are and how potentially we might help. We'll maybe go back to that person and get more information if we can. And then we'll make a decision about what level of service we can provide. And it might be that um, that I'll consult or Suzanne will consult with somebody who has some questions about, about the law. It might be that um, uh, one of our court advocates will sit down and, and help that person with paperwork, filling out a complaint for parental rights and responsibilities, for example. And that paperwork will then be reviewed by, the, uh, by one of the attorneys. Um, uh, it might be that uh, that Suzanne or I will actually enter an appearance in a case and uh, go to court and represent that person. Uh, in, in a lot of cases where uh, the attorneys aren't able to be there in court, we'll have a court advocate who's there with that person. And a court advocate is just a, a really great leveler. Mm. You know, this, this phenomenon that, that we're talking about and that Rebecca described uh, so nicely is, is really... Uh, it's a it's a course of events that leaves people feeling powerless and um, and having somebody having a friend uh, a court advocate who can be there in court with you when you go to court and maybe for the first time are are actually going to be encountering this person who's who's uh, been abusive to you over a period of time um, it can just be a really powerful thing to have that friend there uh, and uh, somebody who knows the courthouse uh, which which is a big thing in itself. You wouldn't think so. But sure. The, the courthouse in Hancock County is a bit of a maze. And, mm. you know, just having somebody who knows how to get around in the courthouse is a great thing. Uh, but the court advocates are there in court a lot. They know who the players are, who the marshals are, and the, and the judges and the clerks. 
and um, so they can be really helpful in that way. And um, and then you know when the attorney can be there, uh, the, that victim then has somebody who can actually speak for them and and uh, uh, make arguments to the court. And mm. do things like so that. it sounds like it, it, it starts with um, um, a victim or a friend of a victim kind of um, saying, this is the situation I'm in or that I see. And then um, your staff uh, through the hotline kind of gives them some options, gives them some ideas about how they can take steps. Eventually, it might end up in a court situation. But uh, the first step is to kind of get things kind of situated, stable, whatever, um, that, Kind of the emergency response is, is first, and then the education and the planning response comes later. Right. I think we are in a very fortunate position that we have the time to talk to people and learn about their whole story. We don't focus just on one aspect of a person's life. We look at, at their, uh, you know, their holistic life. And so the court help uh, is very likely to be a part of that but it's it's not all of it and so we we try to help people with all of those aspects mm. well let's let's talk a little bit about um the the notion of of uh, um prevention okay. <laughs> education is certainly programs like this where you're alerting people to what uh, domestic violence is this this uh, persistent pattern of, of trying to control someone um what are other elements of prevention that you're working on? And then we can bring um, uh, Rod Charette into the conversation in terms of these assessment um, teams and so on. Right. I think that um, we've learned a lot over the years. The domestic violence movement started over 40 years ago. And, of course, it started with a system of shelters. That, and the idea was let's get the victims out and keep them safe. And then we moved on from there to think about what are the laws, Can what, what ways can we improve the response to victims? And so we really have enhanced people's safety and saved people's lives over the years. And then the next step to think about was, so how do we talk about preventing this from happening in the, in the first place? Mm. And, you know, I think initially a lot of us were out there doing presentations and talking to everybody we could about this and, and you know, and working to change attitudes and learn more ourselves about this, about this problem. And now we're at a point where we're doing all of that still, but also adding in what we would call some systems advocacy, where we, we try to come together as community partners and learn from each other about what we're seeing from victims and from perpetrators. And how can we work together as a team to uh, sort of make sure that we are enhancing and improving victim safety, holding perpetrators accountable, and then looking at our own part in this problem to see what we can do differently. Mm. Lieutenant Charette, how might this work in terms of, of your seeing someone who's repeatedly um, kind of crossed your radar as a, a perpetrator? How do you begin to then say, well, are there steps beyond just responding to the individual incident that says, oh, we're looking ahead and we're going to take a different view well, clearly each <clears throat> excuse me every time we respond to a situation and for example let's say it's a repeated situation where we're responding to the same residence yes and um every officer out there has a, a residence in mind if they're listening they're like oh yeah i, mm -hmm. I can think of a couple myself that mm -hmm. oh yeah i went to that house a lot mm -hmm. or for, for whatever reason mm -hmm. um you know, we respond to the situation. We assess: is has there been a crime committed? What sort of crime is here? And what what's going on here? Why are we Why are we here again this week? Um, what did we do last week with this? What can we do better with it? Um, because clearly, we don't want to be responding 
week after week after week because I mean people are at risk. Where I mean our officers are at risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, and at the end of the day, it's our job to help solve the problem. So if we if we didn't quite get there the first time, right. we're going to try. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of work that goes into um, you know prevention uh, outreach programs. Um, we talk with the district attorney's office a lot. We're in touch with the bail commissioners as far as um, you know. What is going on here that you know either this person's violating his bail or he there was no crime committed last time, but there is now and now we need to work with okay what's the potential what's the potential risk for recidivism here uh, is this going to happen again? How much risk is the victim in i mean let's let's take a look at this and and see what are we looking at for a pattern here there's a lot of assessment that goes into it, and it's not just the individual trooper that's doing this he's speaking with his supervisor who actually in turn speaks with their supervisor, who ultimately is me, um, and when we've all got situations where we take a look at this and say, okay, we need to put a little extra emphasis on this because this is what we're seeing for a pattern and it concerns us. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that that goes on behind the scenes in our agency and it involves uh, you know, other ag- partner agencies uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, I understand that there are some, some new models around this kind of early assessment. Um, talk about how that might work um, in terms of your role, the um, law enforcement's role, other community members' role. How might that work? Well, there are a couple of things that are happening sort of concurrently, and, and they are related but different. And one is that uh, law enforcement, um, the uh, law enforcement community has accepted and uh, taken on a new risk assessment tool that w- is being implemented in some places already. And I think 2015 is when the state of Maine has said that law enforcement agencies should be implementing this across the board. And it's called the ODARA risk assessment. And it's the Ontario Domestic Assault Risk Assessment. It's it's a tool. Yes. And it's it's interesting because it's really an actuarial tool it was based on studies of many of many cases of domestic abuse to determine what are the what are those factors that when we see them they all sort of add up to a very dangerous situation and so law enforcement are learning about this and a lot of a lot of agencies are already using these tools so um, I think it, that the training won't be brand new for people but it's it's a sort of a checklist approach it's to, to use this information that we've gathered over all of these years about who are the most dangerous perpetrators how can we identify them Mm. Why don't I list our phone numbers because there may be listeners who are interested in this topic and would like to share their experience or their or ask questions of our guests in the studio this morning. We're talking about community response to domestic violence. Rebecca Hobbs and Rick Doyle are with us with the next step, a domestic violence program serving Hancock and Washington counties. But there are domestic violence programs available to all, all counties. Is that right, Rebecca? Yes. Uh, the Maine Coalition uh, to End Domestic Violence has eight member projects. And um, last year, we all together serve 12,000 people. Many of our organizations do very similar work, uh, certainly influenced by our community need, but our services are, are very much the same and we work together a lot. Mm. Also with us in the studio is Lieutenant Rod Charette of the Maine State uh, Police. So if you'd like to give us a call, one 625 9378 is our phone number, or locally at 469-0500. I do believe we have a, a call coming in. Our engineer will tell us that in, in just a moment. Um, do you want to list your your uh, um, kind of uh, contact information as well? Rebecca, we do have a call. Let's go ahead with that call. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, if you'd like, um, then go ahead with your question. Well, we have 
some music there. Maybe not a, a listener. We'll try again in a, in a moment. Rebecca, just um, if you would list your hotline, uh, just if people are listening and want to know that information. Right. Our 24-hour hotline is one 800 315 Five five seven nine. So that's not the number to call right now if you're interested in talk, uh, being on talk of the towns. But uh, it's an important um, community number. While we're working on the uh, phone lines, um, what would come next in terms of these assessment teams? Uh, uh, um, Rod, would you be involved in in kind of helping train officers on, on how to use these t- these kinds of assessment tools? We are on different levels, and I've I've been to the Odara training um, in Mangor. We we had a lot of it in that way, and I. Uh, actually placed a lot of my my troop in that uh, it's a very interesting assessment it's historical it, it deals with what what we've seen over the years and it's a 13 point assessment that is, is pretty critical really when you take a look at it um, so let's go ahead um rick i mean uh, uh Rod, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute but let's take um, a couple of calls from our listeners um if you'd like give us your first name or at least the town you're calling from and then go ahead with your question or comment please yeah, this is John from Downhill. Yes. Um, I was hoping that they could address uh, the correlation between animal abuse and domestic violence and how um, the, the pets are holding the women in, in the homes. They have uh, done studies where uh, 18 to 48 percent of battered women and their children delay leaving abuse situations in fear for what might happen to their animals. And then... Um, how does that correlate with the shelters not allowing pets? Mm. Uh, I'll get off the line and hope that you can address that correlation. Okay, let's hold that um, um, question and take another call, um, and then we'll see how we can kind of answer all of these. So our next caller, if you'd give us your first name, if you'd like, and then the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment. Hey, this is Jim from Burnham. Do I have you? Yes, thanks. Um, it's a little bit confusing because I'm listening online, and they don't line up with the Oh, sure. Time. Uh, I was just wondering if you could set it up for people to be able to call anonymously and just ask whoever answers the phone behind the scenes a question. Uh, this is, uh, you know, small town Maine, and there might be people out there who are uh, affected by this and want to know more about it but are not comfortable with getting their voice heard on the air. Right. So um, we we could certainly take um, – we would – certainly relay any questions um, that you might send to us by in- internet and I believe that's info at WERU and we'd ser- if you're doing that during the show if you've got those questions you want to keep those anonymous that would be fine um, it, it, again we, we invite you to, to uh, um, share your name but you don't have to so um, uh, thanks for that call a good suggestion this notion of, of the relationship between um, domestic abuse with humans and with pets, Rebecca, that's a pretty well-established um, pattern. It is, and, and John, I'm very glad you asked that question because it's something that we talk about a lot. It's very near and dear to my own heart, and there's a few ways that we, that we certainly hear about abuse to pets. One is that it is an intimidating factor to people in the household. And it's really heartbreaking to hear when, for instance, the father kills an animal in front of the kids to show them that he's in charge. Uh, and we do hear that a lot. It's, it's really sad and shocking the number of times we hear about uh, hurt, harming pets, threatening to harm pets. And some of it is directed at the animals, and a lot of it is about intimidating the people, and all of that is is horrifying. 
certainly it does keep people in the home. If you have an animal that you can't take with you and you're worried about that animal, then we um, then we talk to families about that. We have a number of options for people. So please don't have that be a reason that you don't reach out to us. We have uh, relationships with with different animal providers that we can call in. We are working on seeing what we can do in our shelter. Right now our shelter does accept service animals and we are looking at other options to to provide places for animals that are not service animals. They'll, it'll always be an issue because the other thing we hear a lot about is livestock, you know, people who have horses. So the um, because the issues are multiple and deeply complicated, we would just encourage you to call and problem solve with us because we do have some interesting things going on. Mm. I do believe, believe we have another call. Um, let's take that call. Um, if you'd like to list um, the town you're calling from and your name, that would be fine. If you don't, that would be right to um, go ahead with your question or comment please yeah, hi I, I did have a comment about um, um, the fact that people can call anonymously to any of the crisis numbers and, and get good uh, good answers I'm sure they don't have to do info at e, ERU right oh yes yes you know so so that guy really could just go ahead right now and call the crisis number um, and get good, good answers question I, I missed the beginning of the show so I don't know if you've dealt with this but are there any ways of of predicting where the problems are going to be. I mean, socioeconomic, mm. geographic, uh, is there anything that comes to mind in that realm? Mm. Good question. And we'll, we'll um, again, again clarify that, yes, um, calling any of the uh, domestic violence programs can be done anonymously. Um, I was just trying to sort out whether the person wanted to do that on the air. But thanks for both um, your question and your comment. Great. Um, are there patterns that we kind of, uh, kind of address? Um, I asked whether it was rural and urban, and you didn't seem to think that was an issue. Um, are there any other p- things that we can say? Well, what we know is that domestic abuse can happen in any family and in any, any place to anyone. So uh, we don't limit what we, where we reach out to any particular area. But we also know that sometimes the lethality increases due to things like heavy substance use and availability of guns so these things are are important to take into account if an abuser loses his job and he also is using substances that increases the lethality um, so these are some of the things that you might have in the assessment um, these are the, these 13 factors that you might be looking at exactly and so the but the other way it comes into play is that if if there's um, if somebody's in a r- really rural location, then that's a barrier to leaving, and so that increases the isolation and makes it more difficult for a victim to reach out to services and to get help. So I think those factors do come into play in multiple ways. So it's not necessarily that there, there's more prevalence in a rural area, but it's harder to get those services and to make those connections. Exactly, and so what we find now is that many of the many of the women who live in our shelter have you know no money uh, and they often have multiple issues going on because there are options for people now to stay in their homes and if they have money maybe to stay at a hotel or something so people whose barriers are 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 higher have a much harder time escaping violence but that violence can really happen to anyone what do you hear is the is the uh, kind of the, the tipping point when you when people are calling the hotline? What has actually kind of changed in their life so that they actually reach out? 
have a, a sense of that? Are there some some barriers that they get over um, by by making that call the first time? It's it's interesting because, um, and I'd be interested to see what what Rick has to say about that as well. Because we talked, I would want you to know that we do talk to people whether they've left their relationship, whether they're in their relationship, if they have no intention of leaving. You know, leaving the relationship does not necessarily end the abuse, and so we always want to say that a lot of times uh, the the thing that makes people really come to a place of something needs to change is when some, uh, something happens to the children. I mm. think that's a, a very big thing. And sometimes it's just a cumulative effect of years. And, you know, they get to a point where they say, I don't even really know what it was, but I'm just done. Mm. Rick, anything to add to that? No, I, I mean, a, a threat to the kids is what came to mind immediately for me. But it could be somebody's filed something in court. It could be that uh, a friend has reached out and really, uh, you know, gotten through to somebody and said, you know, here's a resource that you can call. And it could be anything. And I, I think it's very individualized. Mm. And, and uh, Lieutenant Charette, what, what do you want people to do in terms of contacting law enforcement when they're in these situations? To, you know, where is it that they should best um, connect with you? And we have an all-purpose number. 911 is clearly the number you have to dial. Mm -hmm. um, you can try to remember the number of the sheriff's office or the state police barracks or whatnot, but 911 is clearly what we want you calling. Um, that is going to put you in touch with the dispatch center that is uh, you know, well-adapted. Assessing the situation, dispatching the appropriate resources, and uh, so, yeah. Mm. That's and so um, is there a difference between um, encouraging someone to call the hotline versus law enforcement? Is there a kind of a, a trigger point there where you'd really want someone to call law enforcement because they're in, in, in that well, kind of Well, law enforcement, typically, we're dealing with an emergent need. Okay. Uh, it is a, I need a police officer here now. Mm -hmm. um, typically, there's, you know, the crime has been committed or it's ongoing, and there's not a lot of room for discussion as far as problem-solving at the immediate time right. because they need somebody to intervene at the immediate time. Um, so what would, again, because I'm not a, a legal person, what would... would um, trigger that kind of call? What kind of crime needs to be committed for you to be most effective? Well, we see, generally speaking, it's some sort of an assault. Okay. It's some sort of an offensive physical contact. Um, but, you know, we take calls every day. People will give us a call and say, you know, hey, I really don't like what's going on here in my house. Um, I'd like to talk to a trooper about it. Um, you know, well, yeah, no problem. Okay, so yeah, we'll, we'll send a trooper. So don't we'll hesitate. Send, yeah, don't, 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 oh my gosh. No, right. don't hesitate to right. give us a call. Right. Um, we're well versed in what's available for resources. I mean, Rebecca and I talk I mean, probably at least. So once it goes a month. both ways. Of course it does. Right. Yes, it does. Right. I mean, if, if Rebecca sees something that's emergent in a conversation that she's having, she's going to pick up the phone and call us mm -hmm. and say, "Look, you really need to take a look at this situation." Sometimes it comes to us first. Sometimes it goes to a partner agency first. But ultimately, the goal here is to get people the services that they need, and we have a specific set of tools. I mean, we deal with uh, prosecution of crime, and. Uh, you know, the after effect of that, getting other people involved, the support systems, that's also something what we deal with. But essentially we are, you know, we are right there when it's happening. Mm -hmm. So it, it becomes, you know, sometimes it's trickier than not. It becomes a very articulate situation when, when you're responding to a call and you're not, not necessarily sure what's going on. You know what you're being told. Sure. But, you know, sometimes things not necessarily get embellished, but, you know, the, the true meaning behind the tone of a person's voice uh, can get lost in the translation. Um uh, a little piece of information that's not doesn't seem necessarily important at the time becomes very important when the officer gets there. There's all sorts of things that the first officer on scene needs to be aware of and, and be cautious of in mm -hmm. order to be able to, you know, 
address the situation appropriately. one 625 as we continue our conversation about um, local community response to domestic violence. one 625 So what haven't we talked about, Rebecca? What, what are some of the things that you'd like to make sure that listeners know about? Well, the other form of risk assessment that we're currently working on is um, developing our own community partner risk assessment team. And uh, maybe Rick would like to talk about that. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, we uh, are working on, uh, uh, we're we're conceptualizing a multidisciplinary team that that would meet regularly to assess ongoing risk risk in potentially lethal cases. And uh, I don't think we, we threw this number out before, but this is a number that uh, has just sort of really uh, come back to me, come home to me uh, at various points in my career. Uh, year in and year out uh, in Maine, uh, about half of homicides are domestic violence homicides, give or take. And, and it's just, uh, you know, we're not a state that has a really high homicide rate, but it's just really striking to me that that year after year, um, 50% of homicides are domestic violence. And so uh, this is to try to address those situations before the homicide occurs. And um, uh, our legal services coordinator and I uh, went to a a really interesting conference in April last year in Boston where we uh, got to hear people speak from around the country who had been involved with uh, what many pe- what many projects refer to as high response uh, high risk response teams, and uh, so we heard some uh, some really interesting things, and we brought those ideas home, and we've been, uh, as I say, we've been sort of conceptualizing this, and we're at a point now where we're ready to reach out to potential partners, which would be partners in the criminal justice system, Lieutenant Sherrod and the DA's office, uh, the various local uh, police departments, and. Um, uh, we want to uh, start a, uh, planning to, to create a team that would, uh, as I said, would maybe meet on a monthly basis or more often if necessary in an emergency situation uh, to share information. Because I think what, historically, I think what we find uh, with homicides is that, with domestic violence homicides, is that uh, there was a lot of information out there, but that sometimes it didn't flow uh where it needed to, and uh, and that if it had, uh, you know, the tragedy might have been avoided, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's that's kind of the idea behind the high risk assessment teams. We're very excited about it, and we're as I said, we're at, we're at a point right now where we're ready to uh, to get this up and running and uh, to to figure out just how it's going to work. There are high risk assessment teams. Rod and I were talking before the this conversation started, and. Uh, there are teams in Waldo County, in York County, Piscataquis County. They all are, are a little, you know, each team is a little different, has a little different approach. And we're looking for something that's going to work you know, preliminarily in Hancock County and then eventually in Washington County as well. Um, and I think for me what this is really about is 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 about building on the relationships that Rod and Rebecca just mentioned a few minutes ago. You know, the next step has has always worked really hard to try to uh, partner with uh, different law enforcement agencies, and I think we've had a lot of success in doing that. Uh, To us, it's an important part of a coordinated community response to domestic violence, and I think there's just wide recognition that the only way to address uh, domestic violence really is as a community, Mm. you know, together. Mm. 
Great. Let's take another phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead with your question. Hello? Yes, go ahead, please. Uh, I grew up in a house with domestic violence. Yes. I wrote a poem about, I call it early childhood survival. Don't trust, deny, detach. Don't say how I feel. Keep it all inside and hope it just ain't real. Pretend it never happened. Don't show the pain. And maybe, maybe, maybe it won't happen again. Hmm. The maybe, maybe, maybe is a child using magic because sometimes it's all they have. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that um, um, that notion that this isn't just about adult women. <laughs> this is about young children, and, and they carry this pain all of their lives. Thank you for your call this morning. You're welcome. Rebecca, there's another um, um, question that's come in uh, by phone, but uh, not. Um, we'll, we'll take it um, if you can respond. Are there um, particular things that men should be thinking about who are the victims of domestic violence? Because there's probably this caller is saying a, a sense of shame of being a man and being abused. Certainly, and and I'm glad you that you brought this up. I said at the beginning of the program, and it's always important to reiterate that all of our services are available to men, and we talk primarily about women, uh, but all of our services. So please, if this is a situation for you, call our hotline. You can call anonymously, and so there's no need to disclose who you are, and we're we're very happy to help you. By listening, problem solving, supporting, and advocating. Mm. Rebecca, we we have situations like um, that that happened in Ellsworth this last um, winter. Mm. Um, the community th- then becomes very aware of domestic violence, so there's probably a, a raising and falling of, of interest. How do you keep people kind of in, in, in enthused about this so that th- we do address it, as Rick says, as a community? Well, exactly. We have a lot of issues in our community, and and people's time is divided in many ways. So you're right the we were we got a lot of calls after the murder on Christmas Day people who were uh, outraged and afraid and wanted to do something and how do we mobilize that is really our question because if we're going to end abuse it's not going to be the next step by ourselves we we've been doing this work and so we we want to lead the ch- lead the charge oh gosh I'm using a military metaphor but uh, we want to we want to we want to lead the work and um, but it takes all of us and so programs like this you know every opportunity we get to reach out we're doing a book group right now we've we had a community conversation in Ellsworth there's a conference on childhood trauma that we're participating in in May I encourage you to visit our website and our Facebook page and look at all the all the all the things we're trying to do and if you have an idea call us up because we're we want to be part of this community how are you funded, Rebecca? What's the funding sources? And then we can talk about a, a kind of a, a community event coming up in okay. April. Right. Uh, we receive uh, grants from the state and the federal government. The Violence Against Women Act has really helped this movement. We uh, get money through that grant uh, through that program by applying for grants. 
and so we've created some interesting initiatives with that money. We receive money from the United Way of Eastern Maine and uh, some foundations, and then just community organizing, support, donations, fundraising events. And on April 6th? Right. Uh, April 6th, we are having our first ever spring brunch and chocolate tasting. Next Step has had a history of having chocolate event, and so we are taking that and building on it by creating this sort of updated event on April 6th at Big Cat's Catering in Ellsworth. And uh, if you want more information on that, you can call us but it's going to be quite delicious the brunch will be served from 10 30 to 1 uh, it's a sunday and so you can come anytime during that time we're going to be having all this delicious chocolate to follow it and we'll, we'll be having a silent auction which we started out saying it was going to be kind of small and now we have quite a few items so i th- i think that will be will be great and we're, we're going to have a, f- a photo booth going on so i think it'll be fun the tickets are not expensive and if you support this work it's a great way to you know to support us and what we do some people who buy tickets Tickets are saying, you know, they can't necessarily go, but give the ticket to somebody who's using your services. And if they can't afford it, they can go. Mm. One other question that I meant to get to, and, and, and that's listeners who might be aware of domestic violence in somebody else's life. Mm. How, what's the best way to be an ally to that person who is a victim of, of domestic violence? Right. That is very important. There's a lot that that you can do by supporting a friend or someone that you see who you believe might be a victim just by speaking out about it and, you know, taking the opportunity. And it's going to be really different depending on the situation. But, you know, if you you can uh, talk to a friend and say, I'm concerned about you and give them our information. If And being a listening ear, if you have that opportunity, is, is great. If you see somebody that you're concerned about and you have an opportunity to slip them some material of ours that uh, in, a, in a confidential and private way. And I also think it's important to speak out against abuse when you see it, it, you know, it from the perpetrator's aspect because we focus a lot on the victims and supporting the victims. But if you know somebody who has one of these belief systems, you know, call them on it. And it's it's not necessarily about stopping a violent act, which may or may not be safe for you. Certainly call the police if you see that. But it's also about, you know, not making jokes about domestic violence anymore, really thinking about the impact on the victims and, and thinking about your own beliefs and response to it. Mm. We're towards the end of the hour. Um, um, kind of, the, this is the time to remember to list um, resource information. So your website and, and uh, contact information, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Our website is www.nextstepdvproject.org. Might be easier to Google it. It's kind of right. a long name. So next uh, step. Yeah. Exactly. And we have a Facebook page, which we keep um, updated quite frequently. We also have, I uh, would encourage you to call that hotline number, which is 1-800-315-5579. Our resource centers during the day uh, have business numbers, but if you know, just remembering that hotline number will get you access to whatever you need. Great. So, a final round for each of you, um, perhaps starting um, with uh, Lieutenant Charette. Um, Rod, what 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 are your hopes for the future? What would you like to see happening? Um, you've been with the force for uh, 20 years. In the next 20 years, what would you like to be seeing happen happening with relation to domestic violence? Well, clearly, we want to see our numbers drop. I mean, we want to see, <clears throat> excuse me, we want to see ourselves responding to less and less domestic mm-hmm. violence. Not not because people aren't reporting it, right. but because it's not happening. Right. Um, 
every law enforcement agency. That's 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 our goal. If your numbers are dropping, then you're doing your job. Mm. So that's what I'd like to see. How about you, um, uh, Rick? What's your hope? Uh, well, you know, uh, we have a my wife and I have an 18 year old son, and I guess I'd like to think that when he's uh, when he's around 40 years old, uh, he'll be part of a generation of adult men who are fully engaged in. Uh, the efforts uh, to end domestic violence. Mm. So we eliminate that belief system that says um, we have the right as men to control yeah. Um, yeah. A, a partner. Yeah. Exactly. And, and also that we recognize as men that domestic violence is not just a women's problem. Right. It's, it's a problem for all of us. Right. And calling, calling people out when you see it um, is exactly. important for, yeah. for men. Rebecca, what are your hopes? I can't possibly... Uh, say anything after both of those those are great i i support those goals <laughs> oh great thanks well we've come to that time when i want to remind you that this program was produced with support from cooperative extension and the hancock county extension association with offices in each county cooperative extension is the major educational outreach program of the university of maine our radio collaboration began in 1990 with weru and continues with your support Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks um, once again to our guests, Rebecca Hobbs and Rick Doyle of the Next Step Domestic Violence Program and Lieutenant Rod Shrett, uh, Commanding Officer of the Maine State uh, Police Troop J. Uh, let's see. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners.